hopefully we'll hopefully this will work and not fall off. Um, so growing up, um, I was born in Taiwan, and then when I came to America, I was about second grade. But growing up, my parents had sent me to Chinese school. I don't know if any of you had gone through that on the weekends. Yeah, I really hated it. Um, I was really bad at it. And in fact, over the years, I would repeat second grade over and over. So, so by the time I was in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, I was taking second grade Chinese with all the second graders. And I was just really out of place. But what I realized was that you can't really learn a language by using it only once a week, right? A few times a year. So I'll, I always made all sorts of excuses not to go. And one of my excuses actually made a little bit of sense. We, had, we were attending a Chinese church. And for a few years, the church decided that we would offer Chinese school after Sunday school. Okay, so we would have service. We have Sunday school. Then we have lunch, choir practice. And then we go to Chinese school. And I really, really disliked that idea, right? So I remember I told my parents one day, I don't want to go to Chinese school because we're not supposed to work on Sundays. Right? Sundays is a day. We can't go to Chinese school. We can't work. Um, I don't know how genuine I was. Maybe part of me <laughs> believed that, but mostly I probably just didn't want to go to Chinese school. But there is a different idea that we are called to rest on Sabbath day. And this weekend, we've been talking about the idea of work and doing good work. And now I want to ask the question, what is the opposite of doing good work? Some would say rest is the opposite of work, right? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So in some, some people say, well, this rest or Sabbath is the opposite of work, right? And, that, and this is kind of my argument when I was arguing against Chinese school on Sunday, right? We need rest. But others say that faith is the opposite of work. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of things that we do, not of works, right? In faith, we trust God to provide, but in work, we, we attempt to secure our own provisions physically and spiritually. So I want to explore this idea. What is the relationship of faith, rest, and work? Let's go to Exodus chapter 16. We're starting verse 13. I do have it on the slide, but it's too small to read. So if you have your Bibles, open to Exodus chapter 16. It's the story of the manna. Now starting verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay around the camp. Now when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? Well, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord had given you to eat. This is what the Lord had commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons as in each that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some, some more, some less. 
But when they measured it with the omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and he bred worms and stink. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, and each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will. Bake and boil what you will boil. And all that's left over, lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside until morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will, they, will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, right? You see, in this story, in this event, God provides, right? He provides manna and he calls the people to work. Gather each of you as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. God provides and people are to work. People are gathered this thing. But there's an element of faith also, right? Then no one leave any of it till morning. We had to depend on God every day to provide, right? They couldn't gather extras. If they got gathered extras, it was the, the disobedience to God. It means they lack faith that God will provide the next day, right? So when Jesus gave the Lord's prayer, one of the more contentious part is give us this day or daily bread. Um, maybe it's a little bit controversial to what it means, but part of the idea I think has to do with that. We need to depend on God every single day for sustenance, right? Today, we're so used of having food stored, right? So if you look in my car, when we drove up from Minneapolis, we, still, we, we brought food with us and we have food stored for days and days. And if you think about your pantry at home or refrigerator, we keep food for days. We don't have this idea that we depend on God for food every day, but that's the spiritual reality that we don't gather enough for two or three days. We come to God every morning. He gives us new mercies every morning, right? So this is the case that the Israelites had. They had no choice but to depend on God every day that the manna would fall from heaven, they would gather and they would eat and it was sufficient for them for that day. They couldn't store it and there is no temptation to build a large barn, right? They had to trust God every day and God forced it upon them. God forced its sort of faith upon them, right? Because if they gather more, it just rots. And then there's also this idea of rest. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. God forced the rest upon them, a holy Sabbath upon them, right? 
do everything on the sixth day. Bake if you want, boil if you want, whatever's left over, leave it till morning. The seventh day was going to be special, right? The seventh day, this manna wasn't going to rot. In fact, there'll be no manna outside. You couldn't work on the seventh day. You had to trust that God would provide for you on the Sabbath day. It was a forced rest. Even if you wanted to go out and work, you couldn't. There was nothing there. If they didn't gather double on the sixth day, like they were commanded to, they would just go hungry on the seventh day, right? So this is a good illustration of God's provision and reward of faith and rest. In a way, Sabbath rest is an act of faith. The Israelites can rest from their work on the Sabbath day. In fact, they had to rest from work on the Sabbath day. They had to trust in God that God would provide that God would provide while they rested. And this was true for them, right? Not just of gathering manna, but for all their lives. In all their wanderings, in their life as a nation, they were to rest. They were to rest from business. They were to rest from work. So you can't just go work on the seventh day to get ahead in your business, to get ahead in your crops, right? You had to rest. That was God's command. And it was God's way of telling them, you trust me by resting. This, man, this manna was illustrative, but it was also forced upon them during the times of wandering. But later on, God did give more commands for the Sabbath. And it was not forced upon them. They had to choose. They had this, this idea of the Sabbath rest for the land. Every seven years, the land was supposed to lay feral. It's supposed to lay without planting. And that was a huge thing in our agrarian society. If you have land, you only plant six years and not do anything in the seventh year, right? That's, that's crazy for people who didn't trust God to provide. And in fact, we have evidence that Israel never actually trusted God to rest on that Sabbath year to not plant, right? The idea was that God would provide food for them even on that seventh year, if they didn't plow the land, that on the sixth year, God would give them extra two, three times more so they have plenty for the seventh year. And the seventh year, when they don't plant, their crops will still come out of the land and you'll, care, you'll feed the poor and the needy. God had given them a cycle of rest and work. It's a rhythm to help them work and trust God by faith. By resting, they were learning to trust God to provide for them. But the lack of faith would come, become their downfall for Israel. We read later in the Bible that Israel was removed from the land in part because the land did not enjoy Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So Israel was removed out of the land for 70 years. And God said, these 70 years, at 70 years, you did not keep the Sabbath. So for 490 years, Israel lived in land, and they didn't keep the Sabbath. So God forced the rest, moved Israel out of the land, right? So God wants us to take this idea of Sabbath very seriously, that Sabbath was the way to rest and to trust God to provide while they rest, right? So there was, it wasn't a disparagement of work. It was an idea that we work and we trust. We work and trust. Race and rest and faith are not opposition to work. It's a cycle, right? Just like creation was a cycle. Six days, God worked. Seventh day, he rested. We follow that pattern. And Israel was expected to follow that pattern. 
Now, today we're not under the Old Testament law. We don't have this command to rest or land every six years. We don't keep the Sabbath the same way the Israelites were called to do. Yeah, I think the principle is the same. Instead of working on Saturday, instead of not working on Saturday, Christians rest on Sunday from regular work. We gather here to worship. It's a day that sit apart for worship, right? We, we, get, we stop our daily work and we gather together as a church and we come before God and we, we, we ask God to set the direction for us for the whole week. It reminds us that we live by faith just as rest had dictated. We're not coming to church to further our regular work. We're not coming to church to make connections so we can find jobs or move ahead. We're coming to church to rest and be with God's people, to, to be in God's presence, to, among his body. We come to receive from God his word through the scriptures, the hearing, the sermons. We come to receive his grace from God as, we as it is symbolized through communion that we'll do later today. We come and we live and we partake of the body, become part of the body of Christ. We, we see each other visibly. We come to align our hearts to God's heart through the songs that we sing, through all the things that the fellowship that we have. In essence, what we do on Sundays is an intense and physical way of what, how we're supposed to live and think throughout the week. And Colossians 3 says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you appear with him in glory. So the other six days we work, we're not working as if we're non-Christians. We're working with faith. We're working in light of Colossians 3 that, we have been raised with Christ, seek your things above. So on Sunday, we focus on these things. So the rest of the week, we can experience and live as if we are really seated with Christ, right? That our minds are set above. Sunday, we, we intensely do that during the week that we can be able to live out lives of faith, right? And then we work out our faith. We work as people say, God is my CEO. We work knowing that it is God who ultimately provides we work knowing that work is good for us and blesses our neighbors. It is fair to say Sabbath rest is a recentering of our lives so that when we work, we work out faith and rest in a sense is to have faith. Now the question, next question we have is what happens when faith becomes sight? What happens when, right, that's the hymn goes, haste a day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a squirrel. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, right? Even so, it is well with myself. What happens when we, this faith becomes sight? No more recentering is necessary, right? Because we see the Lord face to face. Our soul is at rest, right? Is this a hope for eternity that is a state of perpetual rest? In a sense, it is, right? Because we live by faith. Now we see God face to face. But... Does that mean that in heaven or when we're in the presence of God in our eternal state, that we simply rest and do nothing, right? So you see those websites with uh, rest in peace, right? Do we simply rest and do nothing for eternity? If work is so important in creation and redemption and everyday life that we experience today, 
what is the role of work in your internal home? What is the role of work in heaven? So I want to um, talk about this question. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're starting verse 7. And here the author gives us a warning not to be like Israel when they lack faith in the wilderness. But he also gives us hope that God rested on Sabbath and he invites us to enter into his Sabbath rest. The section is a little bit long, so I'm going to read the section, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it as I read it. So if you can follow along with uh, me in Hebrews chapter 3. He starts by quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right? So Israel had failed to trust God and part of punishment as a whole generation wandering the deserts. And instead of going into the promised land, which represents rest, this type of rest for them, they were stuck in the wilderness and they would die there. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, verse 12, any of you, a evil and believing heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as called today, and every day, right? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. But... But, but for, the, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief right so he said is a generation of people who've seen god's works who's heard god's word but they were in unbelief so this is a great warning for us right we don't want to fall into this kind of unbelief like the israelites did right we have heard the word but israelites did not re respond to the word they um they still were rebellious and disobeyed god they did they lack faith and belief right chapter four Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you shall seem to have failed to reach it. But good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered at rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, but though Israel did not enter into the promise, they did not enter, enter into rest, this promise is still available for us. The rest is still there. We can still enter that faith, enter into that rest through faith, right? Although um, his works were finished on the foundation world. Okay, verse four. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, right? So this rest that he was talking about was established back in Genesis, right? When God rested on the seventh day, right? And now he's saying God's inviting us into his rest. 
since therefore, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of a disobedience. Again, he appoints certain date today, saying that though David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Right? He's making this very clear. You're hearing God's word today, don't harden your hearts. Right? He repeats this over and over. And then he talks about the example of Joshua in verse 8. For if Joshua had been giving them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, so what he's saying here is that the Israelites miss this rest. The rest is still available for us. God is still inviting us into his rest. Right? Verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest also has rested from his works as God did from his. There is therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account, right? So there's this challenge given to us. We must strive to enter that rest and we will be judged, right? And will we fail like Israel in your unbelief or will we enter that rest that God has promised, right? Not everyone who hears the word of God will enter his rest. To enter into the rest of God is to be with God for eternity, right? Israel missed it. And we will also miss it if we do not obey. Now, if we were to create or forge your understanding of eternal or eternal state simply based on the word rest, we will think that simply we will simply do nothing, right? Right, because verse chapter four, verse 10 says, for whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his, right? So I think lots of times we have this idea that in heaven, we do nothing. And I don't know, how many of you think that in heaven, we sit on clouds, maybe we play some harps, and we do nothing? I mean, that's kind of the picture that cartoons would put, right? This is what you do in heaven. This is worship. Um, and I think that's boring. That's static, right? I mean, sure, I think there's a sense of peace. But I don't think the rest in peace do nothing. It's really what the picture heaven is, right? Other passages in the Bible hint that there's much work to do in heaven. The very idea of work is, right, we talk, we've been talking about all weekend, the idea that work is good even before the fall, and that we're created to work tells us that in heaven, we should be fulfilling that what we're created for. We should be, we should be following our image, the, or the image God, that God is putting us, and work should be good, and it should continue in heaven. It's not simply rest and do nothing, right? Passages such as Re Revelation 22, 3 tells that we will all worship and serve God, right? So at least there's that kind of work to serve God. But I think there's much more, right? Much more than directly worshiping God. After all, we're already in God's presence. There's also this praise and we see like the angels praising and living creatures preaching the elders um, praising God. But there's also passages such as 2 Timothy 2, who talks about if we endure, we also reign with him. So there's more work to do in heaven than simply resting and doing nothing. And in the fact, if you think about that, you're reigning with him, right? That's kind of like 
how we were created to be, but the image bears a God to given creation to rule and have dominion over. Now, what does it mean then to enter God's rest? If it's if, if there's work, then what does it mean to enter God's rest? One book has been kind of helpful to me to understand this. John Walton has a book about called Ancient Near East Thoughts and the Old Testament. Looks at he, what he does, he looks at the Old Testament in light of our understanding of the surrounding cultures. And um, so what he, he does, okay, the Old Testament is written this, during this period of time with these cultures surrounding it. So what, what does that teach us about what God is saying? In here, so let me read a section about um. Oh, yeah, okay, great, thanks. I don't know if you can let it here, but okay, see it. But the concept of divine rest. So he's talking about this divine rest that God is inviting us into. The concept of divine rest can, in turn, be elucidated by ancient Near Eastern literature, which demonstrates that deity's rest is achieved in a temple generally as a result of order having been established. The rest, while it represents disengagement from the process of establishing order, whether through conflict with other deities or not, is more importantly an expression of engagement as the deity takes his place in the helm to maintain an order, secure, and stable cosmos. And then he gives the six aspects of divine rest in the ancient Near East, which kind of illustrate this concept. So before I get to the, the six concepts, what he's saying is, as we look at the, the, the literature that was written around the time the Old Testament was written, he sees that this idea of divine rest is found in the pagan societies. Now, he's not endorsing the pagan gods. The Bible doesn't say God is like the pagan gods. But what he's saying is that when, when we read the Old Testament, we should understand that the people who read the Old Testament also understood how the pagan gods have worked because that was part of the culture. And what the Bible really shows is the difference between the real God and these pagan gods. So now he's going to give us six illustrations uh, to, um, to talk about this nature of divine rest that, that the, the pagan gods had, okay? So let me give you the six. Um, the divine rest is disturbed by a rebellion, and this is disrupted order. Divine rest is achieved after conflict, renewed order. Divine rest is achieved after order, bringing act of creation. Divine rest is achieved in the temple, in the center of the order. Divine rest is characterized by ongoing control and stability, rather than simply sleeping peacefully which is a different concept, another concept in ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, the divine rest is achieved in part by the God's creation of people to work in their place and on their behalf. So the, those ancient pagans had understanding of their gods doing this. Our relationship with God is nothing like that. The Bible gets some mislanguage from it, but it really shows how God is different, right? In the ancient Near East literature, their deities interest by creating people to work in the place of the deity. So in that case, people are slaves to this deity, right? People would do and serve their deities. They would sacrifice themselves to their gods, right? But we know God is different, right? When we work, we're blessed by the work of our hands, but it is God who works, right? So instead of God saying, 
you work for me, he's saying, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work with you. Uh, we have a painting of a very different God. The Israelites were commanded to keep the Sabbath rest so they could enjoy the goodness of God, right? The, the pagan society, they had to take on God's burden, God's um, work, or the, their deity's work, right? So it's a very different idea. So I think what this teaches us about heaven is this, right? We will have work, but the work, what the work we do is in the context of this divine rest. We work, all right? So we will work in place where order is no longer disrupted, right? We had talked about sin, disrupting the order of work, right? Remember we talked about the frustration of um, creation because of sin? That order was no long, will be no longer disrupted. The cosmic conflict is already resolved, right? And it's not that we resolve it, but Jesus resolved it for us, right? So it's not like we go fight on behalf of or deity against other deities. Jesus resolves that conflict for us. Um, number three, we work in the presence of God himself, right? So, and then and God will draw with us, um, right? Number four, I was saying the divine rest is achieved in temple. In heaven, we will be in the temple. We'll be with God himself. Um, and this divine rest, number five, is will last for eternity without interruption of sin in the fallen world. So the ongoing stability is not because we fight on behalf of a deity, but the ongoing stability is because Jesus has the victory and this fallen world is going to be recreated, new heaven, new earth. And also, lastly, um, we will serve God and be blessed by God in our work, right? So instead of us working on behalf of a deity, we're going to continue working with God, serve God, and be blessed through our work and blessing others through our work. So Sabbath work is not cessation from all work. Rather, in, in eternity, we will have eternal rest from this disordered work that we do today, right? We talked about the enemies of work last time. And now we would look forward to a day who will work and do good work without those enemies, right? Without the fallen nature, without sin in our hearts, without all these things that of idols of work, we will do fruitful work. You'll be beneficial, good work in the presence of God. Sabbath rest, is the cessation of work as we experience it today in a sinful world, right? The possibilities that end this, right? How, how would we know what work is like? So if you think about it, right, most of our work is trying to fix the effects of the fall, right? Doctors heal, um, engineers do things, they build things because of the fall. We, we plant things and they don't grow well because of the fall and we try to find ways around it and fix it. But imagine that kind of work, doing, imagine doing work in, in a world where there's no sin and there's no effects of sin, right? What kind of pastors, what, what do pastors do? What do, does anyone do? It's completely different, right? But no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of may imagine, but God has prepared for those who love him. I think once we go to heaven, our hearts, our minds, everything's going to be renewed. Everything's going to be so different. 
but I don't think it's going to be we sit there and do nothing. There's going to be greater work for us to do, greater honor, greater glory to do um, in front of God, to, um, to work with God. So from the main story, we find that we find that Sabbath rest today is faith to trust in God's order. In new heavens and new earth, that order, that new order will be brought down. Sabbath rest is no work in an orderly world without toil, without chaos. Productive, fruitful work. The opposite of good work is not rest or faith. Rest and faith are required for good work. The opposite of good work is evil work apart from rest, apart from faith. We all work all the time, right? In, in a sense, work is what we do. We, anything we do becomes work. It's, the question is, is it good work? Does it arise out of faith and rest? Or is it evil work that goes against or image bears like, as image bearers of God? Are we working that doing what is good in faith? Or are we working to do what is evil, going against God's creation? But as Hebrews is arguing, is eternal rest is not for all. The passage in Hebrews is both a warning and a promise. The warning is that Israel heard God's word, yet as a group, they did not enter his rest. The promise is that the rest is available to us. So I want to focus on these last these um, verses at the very end. Hebrews chapter 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. The ones who are to enter into the rest are those who are obedient. If we lack faith and obedience, we will end up like the Israelites did. They've heard the word and they face judgment. But if we choose to be obedient to God's words, we will enter God's rest. Um, Al Mohler says about this, he, he talks about this in his commentary in Hebrews. We must work at resting. This means we must work against all of our efforts to prove our righteousness. We must strive against our efforts to justify ourselves, right? The word is clear. We're not good enough for God. Our own efforts cannot come before God. When we see the word of God, it divides, it, it, it judges us, right? The word, the word of God is living and active. It's not simply some historical record of what happened how people lived, how God had communication. It's, it's, it's a living and active. It's the same power of God's word that created the whole heavens and the earth. The, the, the word that created heavens and earth is the same word that would judge us, right? So when we read God's word, it judges us before God. When we read about in the Bible, but in humble or hearts that are being judged, will we be obedient to God or will we go against God in our pride? When we read God's word, it is active. When we hear God's word on Sunday, it is active. It, it is powerful. It judges our hearts, and we have a choice. Will we be obedient in faith 
always remain in our sin and work against God. When the Bible says to love our neighbors, it exposes our hearts. How do we love them? Do we love them like Jesus loves them? Do we take advantage of them, right? The word of God is the standard by which we are judged. And we will interest, and they'll tell us whether we're interest in the presence of God or we'll end up in everlasting destruction away from the presence of God. We, in front of God's words, are exposed for who we really, who we really are. This is God's judgment, right? It's similar to the kind of judgment that God talks about in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And they were dead. And the dead were just by what was written in the books according to what they had done. On judgment day, there will be no place to hide. The earth and the sky is fled away. We are standing naked before God, and there's no place for us to hide. God would judge the kings and the servants alike, the great and the small. What kind of account will we give? Is it one of unfaithful disobedience like the Israelites have? Or will it be one that rises out of faith and obedience to the word of God? The only way we can strive to enter that rest is through Jesus. No one can strive into God's rest on our own terms, right? The only way we can enter rest is through the work of Christ. If you're not yet Christian, I challenge you, put your faith in Jesus. No matter how much good you try to do, it will never be good enough. But Jesus already did all the good. It is finished. Only Jesus met God's standards, right? The book of Hebrews will go on to say, that only through the blood of Christ can we have confidence to approach the throne of God to release mercy. Then, when he will, and then once we receive God's mercy, He invites us to do good and to enter His enter into His rest. But if you are trusting Christ for your salvation, let us continue to live lives of obedience to the Word of God. There's much that God has is desiring for us to do. Let us respond to his calling, to our vocation in all areas of our lives. Let us work in the present world with the eye to the world to come. Let us continually be immersed in the word of God so he will continue to judge us and refine us and point us to Christ. Let us be people who are accountable to the creator, to the judge of the world. And let us look forward to eternity in God's rest. Let us look forward to a new creation, a renewed order, a world without frustration, without sin and death, without the fall. And the things that we do will have eternal significance and beauty. Let us look forward to entering into God's presence. Let me close our time with this benediction from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 20, 21. May the Lord, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, O Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of his the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipped you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is placing his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you, Pastor Simon, for that word on work and its place in the Christian life. Uh, for our brothers and sisters at PCC, we're very thankful that you've joined us, and now we're going to prepare our hearts and time to receive the communion. And one of the things about communion is that communion is a picture of how God is preparing us to be in his Sabbath rest. And in fact, one of the things that we know is that that very picture in the book of Exodus, where Israel had gone out to gather the manna in order to uh, partake of the provision of God, was part of that resting, and part also of learning to walk in the favor of God or to fall under the judgment of God. And so we saw in the Exodus how Israel is commanded to go out for six days. And gather on those six, on five of those days, they were only to gather enough for one day. On the sixth day, they were to gather enough for two days and then simply rest on the seventh day. And just as there was that warning for those who were out in the desert, that they were not to disobey the commandment of God and failed to rest, likewise, we also are commanded to walk in the rest of God. And one of the things that we also know is that that idea of God's provision is at the same time blessing, but it's also judgment. And so when we partake in communion, just like with Israel, and in that testing in the wilderness, how we rest, how we partake in the communion of God is likewise a test for us. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, I ask that you take some time, examine what is the foundation of your security in this world? Is it that the wonderful educations that many of you are getting and are striving to receive even now? Or the careers that you're pursuing? Is that the foundation of your rest? Is that the foundation of your security, what you yourself are able to do and accomplish? And if that is the case, then just like with Israel, you will fall under the judgment of God. But if you will rest in God and trust in him, then you too will strive, as Pastor Simon was urging us to do, to enter into that rest of God. So prepare your hearts and your minds as you examine yourself and ask God to convict you and help you to understand how you might better strive to enter into the rest into which he calls us. Um, I ask the uh, servers to come forward with the trays. And so... Howard, if you and Jimmy are here with us in that PCC, uh, you have your own communion service there. Prepare your hearts, and when you have, please come forward and take the communion cup from the servers. Thank you.